I want to say hi to all of you, especially if you're a guest. We're delighted uh, to be worshiping God with you today. Uh, happy Palm Sunday to you. Uh, this is the day. Uh, it's called Palm Sunday. Uh, it's the day that the Christian church traditionally celebrates Jesus, what they call his triumphant entry into Jerusalem at the start of the Passion Week. Uh, that's the week leading up to his crucifixion, ensuing resurrection, and so on, uh, on what was the first Easter. And it's called Palm Sunday because of this narrative in Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 1. Let me read this to you, just sort of as a little, you know, a little sidelight here. As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into the village over there, he said. As soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you are doing, which seems likely, right? This seems real likely. If anyone asks what you are doing, just say, the Lord needs them, and he will immediately let you take them. Why don't you try that the next time you just are going to borrow something? The Lord needs them. See how that goes for you. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, Tell the people of Israel, Look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. The two disciples did as Jesus commanded, and it must have worked out okay. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt. He sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession. The people all around him were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in highest heaven. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this? They asked. And the crowds replied, It's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So you see those cut branches uh, that they were uh, spreading on the road, right? They were likely palm branches, Allah, palm branches. Sunday, the Sunday before Easter on the church calendar, which means, of course, that next weekend is Easter. He is risen, and I invite and encourage you to take note of the different worship experience times. Saturday night is the only one that stays fixed at 6 o'clock, and it's 8, 9.30, and 11 on Sunday morning. 8, 9.30, and 11. So if you come at 9, that will be awkward for you. Okay, 8, 9.30, and 11. Get those in your head. Uh, And I strongly encourage you to be an inviter. Bring a guest with you next weekend. Don't just get yourself and your family here. Uh, Bring a guest with you and just invite and encourage you to use that prime evangelistic opportunity that you've uh, been given. And I got to say, I I sort of read that uh, Palm Sunday narrative there from the book of Matthew. And it'd just be way too easy to talk about little old harmless Palm Sunday, wouldn't it? Uh, like, you know, kind of be fun to unpack that, kind of like, you know, be this fun story, let's unpack that together. But we're not going to talk about uh, Palm Sunday because I'm some kind of glutton for punishment or something. And we're in this series that we call Sticky Questions Christians Hope No One Will Ask. And it's a series that's designed to better help all of us answer some of the questions, the most challenging questions, as a matter of fact, that we Christians get asked about Christianity. And so sticky are these questions that some of us actually pray that no one ever, ever, ever asks us these questions. Please, Lord, no, don't let anybody ever ask me these, especially this week's, right? Especially this week's. And here's the question we're going to tackle today. Why does Christianity so condemn homosexuality when it's clear that God made homosexuals and that he loves all people the same? Stick E. 
And lots of you told me this week that you were uh, praying for my prep. I could tell that you were. I sort of felt carried along. Thank you very much for that. A whole bunch of other people, they saw me around town and such this week, and they said, man, I've been looking forward to you preaching this message for like years now. And they said it with this sort of cunning look on their faces, kind of like they're the kind of people who like to watch bad accidents unfold, right? As one of my dear friends likes to say, even a bad accident draws a crowd. We'll see. And just because uh, I want you to relax a little bit, and I just want to sort of, I can feel the tension in the room. Uh, I just want you to hear right up front, uh, early on, that it's absolutely my conviction, it's our conviction from the sacred text, the Bible, God's word, that physical homosexual conduct is a sin. I want you to hear me say that. And, and, it's a sin when you gossip about your neighbor. And it's a sin when you shade the truth to your boss. And it's a sin when you haven't forgiven the person who said what they said about you three years ago. And it's a sin when you surf porn on the web. And it's a sin when you have premarital sexual relations with your boyfriend or girlfriend. It's a sin when you take what isn't yours to keep. And it's a sin when you... Do I need to keep going? Do get the point there? And this question that we're going to wade into today, why does Christianity so condemn homosexuality when it's clear that God made homosexuals and that he loves all people the same is a whole lot more complex, I guarantee you, than just whether or not it's a sin, isn't it? I want to say right up front that a guy named Mark Middleberg and a few other significant thought leaders contributed to my prep for this message and the whole series. I want to tell you a story about a pastor friend of mine who tells a story about a pastor friend of his who pastors in Brooklyn, New York. My friend's friend, I don't know what else to call him, so I'll call him that. My friend's friend, uh, his church has seen much better days for sure. The community surrounding the church in Brooklyn has undergone great change. Most of the long, long, long time church attenders who really built and established this church have moved away or died and no one has moved in to take their place. It's a church, really, that's fighting for its very survival week in and week out. The people who are left at my friend's friend's church, they love their pastor with their, all their hearts. They try to do their very best by him financially, but he still has a very difficult time making it from one month to the next economically. Fortunately, the pastor is able to receive some help from the local undertakers, from an unlikely source of resourcing, who often call him to do funerals that nobody else will do. When people have no religious or church affiliation when they die, somebody has to do their funeral, right? And my friend's friend is one of those somebodies who does those funerals. And from time to time, my friend will call his friend to find out, hey, what's been going on in your world? Because he serves in the place where he serves with the people that he serves with. All manner of strange and unusual events happen to him. His stories have proven to be an incredibly valuable source of illustrations for my friend's preaching, which I occasionally get to be the beneficiary of, especially in this instance. One day, as my friend was talking to his friend, the pastor from Brooklyn, my friend asked if anything special had happened to him in the past week. The pastor from Brooklyn said, I can't think of anything. So my friend sort of prompted him and said, well, let me get more specific. What did you do last Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock? <laughs> what did you do? Oh, pastor from Brooklyn says, that was an interesting morning. He responded, let me tell you what happened that made it so interesting. Well, uh, I got a call that morning from the undertaker who has his place just down the street, his funeral home, and he was absolutely in a panic. He had to have uh, someone do this funeral 
And nobody else that he had called wanted to have anything to do with this funeral because the man whose funeral it was going to be had died of AIDS. He couldn't get anybody else. I said, well, sure, I'll, sure. I kind of need the money anyway. I'll do the funeral. (laughs) What was it like? My friend inquired. It was strange, he answered. When I got to the funeral home, I found about 25 or 30 homosexual men waiting for me. They were in a room with the casket, just sitting as though they were literally frozen in their chairs. They looked as though they were statues. Each one of them faced straight ahead with glassy, unfocused eyes. Their hands were folded on their laps as though some strict teacher had ordered them to sit just that way. They almost scared me, the pastor said. Several of them wore the kinds of clothes that made quite a blatant statement about who they were and what they were and what they were about. And, so, and the pastor said, so I, I did what I was supposed to do. I read scriptures, I said some prayers, I made the kinds of remarks that preachers are supposed to make when they really don't know the person who died, yet they have to do their funeral. After a few minutes, I ended the service, prepared to go to the cemetery. I, along with those men, we got into the cars that were to follow the hearse. We went out through the Holland Tunnel to the cemetery. It was located near Hoboken, New Jersey. We all got out of the cars and we went over to the edge of the grave. Not a single word, not a single word was spoken by any of those men from the beginning of the funeral until I had finished the prayers to commit the remains of this dead man to the earth. They all, every one of them, just stood there at the edge of the grave as motionless as they had been when they were seated in the funeral home. As pastor explained, I said the closing prayer, the benediction. I turned to leave. I was done. And I realized as I looked back over my shoulder that every single one of those men were frozen in their places, all with blank expressions on their faces. I turned, I walked back to them, I asked, is there anything more I can do for you? And one of them, one of them, finally spoke up. What did he say? My friend said. What he said came as an utter shock to me, my friend's pastor friend said. He asked me to read the 23rd Psalm. He said, when I got up this morning to come to this funeral, I was very much looking forward to someone reading the 23rd Psalm to me. I love that Psalm. I figured that they read it at every single funeral ever, and you didn't read the 23rd Psalm. And so, pastor said, I opened my Bible, I read the 23rd Psalm for those men. When I finished, a second guy spoke up, and he asked me to read another passage from the Bible. He wanted to hear that part of the Bible that says, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And so I read from the eighth chapter of Romans where Paul talks about neither death nor life, angels nor principalities, powers, things present, things to come, height nor depth, nor any other creature can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And when I read, this pastor said to those men that nothing, nothing could separate them from the love of God, he said, I finally saw signs of emotion on their faces for the very first time that day. Then, it kept going. One after another after another. They made special requests for me to read their very favorite passages of scripture. Pastor said, I stood there for almost an hour reading scripture to 25 or 30 homosexual men before we finally got in our cars and went back to Brooklyn. Now my friend, when he heard that story, he almost wept on the phone that day. He said, I I can't even quite describe what it was. It sort of overtook me and made my heart ache with sadness. I did a little reflection on that this week. He couldn't identify it. I think maybe I have. I think it was that those men that 
My friend's friend described in a story of that funeral, they were actually incredibly hungry for the word of God, but they weren't ever going to set foot inside of a church building, were they? They were never going to set foot inside of a church. They wanted to hear the Bible. They wanted to know the Bible. They wanted to have the Bible spoken to them by someone with some spiritual authority. But they were going to do absolutely whatever it took to steer entirely clear of Christians. And I think I know why. I think it's because most homosexuals feel that most Christians and most church people despise them. And in many, 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 many instances, they're right, aren't they? Now, sure, there are exceptions, absolutely. Scattered here and there, we can find Christians and church people who have managed to overcome their homophobia and have reached out to the LGBTQ community if, with and in the love of Christ. But they're very few and far between, aren't they? By and large, the response of we, and I'm putting me inside of this, the response of we Christian people to homosexuals has been sort of horrified disgust, hasn't it? And very, very, very few topics in the church have generated as much animosity and anger among evangelicals as the subject of homosexuality. And while the Bible, I believe, is very clear about physical homosexual conduct being a sin, the Bible is also crystal clear about our role as followers of Jesus Christ. We are to love people. We are to love people, all people, even people whose moral conduct we find to be offensive. The call then, church, is for you and I and everybody who calls themselves a follower of Jesus Christ to reach out and show the very kindness and love of Jesus Christ himself to our homosexual neighbors. And there are lots of them, lots and lots and lots of them. And Matthew 19, 19 makes it clear what this looks like. You could look in your Bible or you can look on the screens. Love your neighbor as yourself. Quite a straight up command, isn't it? Love your neighbor as yourself. Not a lot of wiggle room in that. And just so we're absolutely crystal clear, by laying out the call to love homosexual people with the love of Christ... I'm not in any way asking you or anybody else, any Christian for that matter, to gloss over any biblical teaching about homosexual conduct being a sin, nor am I trying to make any sort of case whatsoever to justify homosexual conduct. Rather, I am reminding all of us that being a follower of Jesus Christ is at its very core about loving God and loving people with the very love of Christ himself and seeing people the way that Jesus sees people. And if we can't do that, then we're living really in quite direct violation of the command of Christ himself, Matthew 19, 19, and we better think about doing something different, hadn't we? And you know what it means to love people the way that Jesus loves people? Because it gets real tangible in a hurry. It means that we're committed to treating people as Jesus would treat them if he were in our place. Treating them as Jesus would treat them if he were in our place treating them like Jesus. Now, it's incredibly important that we make a distinction, I think, between homosexual orientation and homosexual behavior. Homosexual orientation is, by definition, an inclination to desire sexual intimacy with members of the same sex. Homosexual behavior is seeking sexual physical gratification through physical contact with members of the same sex. The former is desire, isn't it? The latter is action. The first is temptation. The second is giving into 
temptation. And believe me, there are a whole lot more Christians than you can imagine with a homosexual orientation who fight against their desire for homosexual behavior only through and by the power of the Holy Spirit of God inside of them. Their desire physically to have sexual contact with persons of the same sex is a constant for them, just as heterosexual desire can be a constant for many people. And for many, many, many Christ followers, they're living examples of this verse, Romans 8, 37. The Bible says, the New Living Translation puts it this way, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Some other versions of the Bible put it this way, we are more than conquerors. They're overcomers. They're overcoming this orientation. They're overcoming this temptation and they're remaining chaste, celibate, not engaging in homosexual behavior. And I think, Christians, that we have to admire Christ-following people who have a homosexual orientation yet are fully committed to living in obedience to God and his word on the subject of homosexual behavior by choosing to remain celibate. Now, there's some Christians who believe and they say that victory over the temptation is not enough. Some Christians like to argue that in order for a homosexual to be truly saved, they must be completely and entirely free from even their homosexual orientation. Many people argue that people with a homosexual orientation should and could be transformed into heterosexuals through prayer and spiritual deliverance. And they have some proof, some considerable proof of this happening. I read some incredibly powerful testimonies just this week of the incredible transformation that God has brought many, many people with a homosexual orientation by and through his Holy Spirit. There's a fantastic organization called Exodus International. This is what they do day in and day out. It is their mission. It's why they exist. Now, God can do that, can't he? He can do that. As a matter of fact, he can do anything in the world that he wants to do, but just because he can doesn't mean that he will. Think about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, just as an example. The famous Christian martyr. He prayed fervently for the deliverance of the Jews during the Holocaust of World War II. Fervently. He prayed as fervently that God would deliver the Jews as you and I have ever prayed for anything in our entire lives. And he discovered that the God who could deliver the Jews didn't, did he? He didn't. And how many of us sitting in this room have prayed for God to show up in our lives, maybe heal a loved one of cancer or from some other life-threatening condition. But he didn't. The God who could heal, the God who has healed in many, many, many cases, didn't. Didn't heal the person who we were praying for, the circumstance we were praying about. And I want you to think on with me how many homosexual people, homosexual Christ followers, have prayed desperately, fervently to exhaustion For God to deliver them entirely from their homosexual orientation without the result that they so yearned for raises the question, are they less of a Christian? I don't think so. Just like you and I aren't less of a Christian when the thing that we cry out so desperately to God for never happens the way that we pray that it might happen. I've also wondered if much of the church's lack of Christ-like love for homosexual people was and is a result of some assumptions about what it is that causes people to have a homosexual orientation. I think most people believe that homosexual orientation is simply a choice to engage in a deliberate sin. However, as you read the scientific data more and more, it points to homosexual orientation actually being inborn. 
Now, this isn't to suggest that all homosexual orientation is inborn. The more I read, as a matter of fact, the more I'm convinced there's actually a variety of causes for homosexual orientation. It can include issues with parental identification as well as early childhood socialization and so. But it all lands in the place that I'm quite comfortable saying that most homosexuals are not consciously choosing this orientation. So how then does a person come to possess a homosexual orientation? Uh, Two words, the fall. The fall. And if you want to make it one word, fall. I believe that all human beings were actually created, intended by God, to be heterosexual. And, as a part of the consequence of the fall of humanity, which was inaugurated in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, choosing to violate God's established law, things, therefore, in this world are not at all as God intended them to be. They're broken, they're fallen, they are all out of whack, all the way down to the sexual orientation of many people in society. Now, God did not make people homosexuals. Homosexuality is the result of the fall, not God's creation. Which begs the question, so then, how do we know that homosexuality is not what God intended for his beloved creation? And the Bible doesn't lack any clarity when it comes to God's view on homosexual activity, homosexual behavior. Romans 1, 26 and 27. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men, and as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved quite clear. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin, or who worship idols, or commit adultery, or male prostitutes, or practice homosexuality, or are thieves, or greedy people, or drunkards, or are abusive, or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Now that's quite a list isn't it? Homosexuality is not the only sin on that list, is it? 1 Timothy 1.10, the law is for people who are sexually immoral or who practice homosexuality or slave traders, liars, promise breakers, or who do anything else that contradicts the wholesome teaching, which by the way is any sin. And then let's go to the Old Testament, that was the New Testament, let's go to the Old Testament, it gets a little stronger even in the Old Testament, do not practice homosexuality. Having sex with another man as with a woman, it is a detestable sin, God's word says. And Leviticus 20.13, if a man practices homosexuality, having sex with another man as with a woman, both men have committed a detestable act. They must both be put to death for they are guilty of a capital offense. So we get it, don't we? We get God's view on homosexual conduct from those passages and... We also understand that punishment, like Leviticus 20.13, refers to the death penalty. They're confined to the Israelite judicial system in quite another era than this one, just so we're clear. Now, some people would argue that the very sharing of those verses is condemnation of homosexuality, which is the very thing we're trying to answer accusations of today. I don't mean any condemnation about it. 
Rather, I'm revealing those passages to us as a community so that it is quite clear what God himself says about behaviors that are not his will for us. I'm being honest. I'm being sincere. I'm being heartfelt. Here's God's view on the matter. Because God did an amazing thing at creation. He gave us his very best, didn't he? God laid out at creation his very best, the very best of everything, the design and the will that he intended for us to live within, including his best when it comes even to our sexuality. Genesis 2.24 captures in quite succinct fashion God's best for human sexuality. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. That is God's model for sexuality. That's what he designed it for. Two people, male and female. That's God's biblical standard. One woman, one man, one marriage, one lifetime. That's it. That's God's best. So this is sort of the facts as we see them about homosexuality, God's view on the subject and so. And for the rest of the time that we have together, I want to walk us through a narrative, a story from Jesus' own life about a time when he handled a similarly controversial issue, which I believe can guide us through how we handle the issue of homosexuality when we're asked, including interactions with people who are persuaded that way. John chapter 4. Starting in verse 3, I'm going to read the whole narrative and then we'll sort of unpack it. Uh, This will be a familiar story to a whole bunch of you. So he, that's Jesus, left Judea, returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at that time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan woman, why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, if only you knew the gift God has for you and who you're speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. It's a bit cryptic, isn't it? But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this? living water. And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoy? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water pointing at the well will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water and I'll never be thirsty again. I won't have to come here to get water. And this is a bit abrupt. Go and get your husband. Jesus told her. We're talking about water, and then all of a sudden, Jesus shifts about five or six gears. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you've had five husbands. You aren't even married to the man you're living with right now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship? Only Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worship. Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship. Oh, we Jews know all about him. 
For salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. And just then his disciples came back and they were shocked to find him talking to a woman. But none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Why are you talking to her? Wusses. They thought it. They didn't want to say it, though. The woman left her water jar beside the well, ran back to the village, telling everyone, come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? Well, she knew that because he had told her. So the people came streaming from the village to see him. This is a story. So Jesus, he's been out ministering. It's time for him to head home to Galilee. Counter to what the rest of his contemporaries chose, Jesus was a Jew who chose to go through intentionally through Samaria, which was bizarre in Christ's day because Jews hated Samaritans. They saw them as political and religious rivals. Jews would actually go a long way out of their way to avoid Samaritans, to avoid Samaria. It was the most direct route however, from where Jesus was to where he was going, and so he's just going to go right through. This is the shortest route. I'm going that way. Which begs the question, why? Why did Jesus choose to go through Samaria? Because he had a mission, didn't he? A mission that transcended all prejudice and politics and religion. It didn't matter. And it's a mission that's captured so incredibly well in Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to do what? To seek and save those who are lost. That's his mission and he was absolutely sold out about fulfilling that mission which is why around journey we are absolutely sold out about fulfilling our mission we take our cues from jesus when it comes to mission fulfillment he did jesus did whatever it takes to help connect people with god his father which is why we do what we do part of our mission statement, as a matter of fact, doing whatever it takes to help connect people with God. All of our outreach, all of our community service, all the ministries of our church, whatever it takes from Jesus' model. So why in the world was Jesus so compelled by this evangelistic fervor that he would actually go through a country full of people who his race hated? Well, it's because of John 3, 16 and 17, isn't it? For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God has sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus intentionally chose to go through Samaria because of his love for people, all people. And it was the love that compelled his mission to seek and save those who were lost. And what happened? It's the middle of the day, he's tired, he's hot, he's hungry, he's thirsty. And he sits down next to Jacob's well, and he extends himself to an outcast member of an outcast culture. This woman didn't just happen to be a Samaritan. Jesus was reaching out to her because she was a Samaritan. It was just one more example that Jesus shows It doesn't matter. All people, all cultures, all colorful, sinful, messed up, broken backgrounds matter to him and matter to God. None of the externals matter. People matter. 
Which means that when we're viewing Jesus' actions with this Samaritan woman through the grid of the question that we're trying to answer today, why does Christianity so condemn homosexuality when it's clear God made homosexuals and that he loves all people just the same? What we see in Jesus is that he enthusiastically affirms God's love for all people, no matter their lifestyle, no matter their activities, no matter the sin that they're engaged in. And Jesus models this very thing. He reaches out, he reaches out and starts a conversation with this Samaritan woman. He models it. And he models it over and over and over and over and over again, all the way to the cross, as he makes a way for every person who ever lived, who ever will live, to be saved through his death, burial, and resurrection. Because see, when John 3.16 says, God loved the world so much, that includes homosexuals. It includes homosexuals. I'm compelled to believe as a result of God's love, Jesus' love for people, God's love in Jesus for people, that Jesus would be reaching out to every single person within the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and questioning community with the exact same kind of love and intentionality that he shows the Samaritan woman. Which begs the question for us, are we taking our cues from Jesus? Are we doing something different? How are we going out of our way to love and reach out to those who are different from us, including people with a different sexual orientation? And here's what I think about this. I do not think it is sufficient for us to nod our heads and say, yep, in my head, I work very hard to love homosexuals and call it good. Because I don't think that's love as Jesus expresses love. Because see, when Jesus expresses love to someone, it was radical and it was incredibly real. He genuinely cared. And he went to great lengths. As a matter of fact, he broke all kinds of unwritten religious codes in his day to cut free of this religious culture stronghold and actually get up close and personal with people who were in desperate need of his divine love. And I guarantee that you and I expressing that same kind of love looks way different than just a mental checklist. Yep, I love them, I love them, I love them. I say I love them. I think I love them. For Jesus, love was action-based. Love was quite tangible. Love had skin on. Love had feet. Love went to great lengths. And the Samaritan woman, when Jesus interacts, when he starts the interaction with her, she's entirely shocked because this is a Jewish religious leader Ordinarily, a Jewish religious leader wouldn't come anywhere near her, let alone start a conversation with her, let alone ask her for a drink of water. But that's who Jesus is. That's who he was. He was famous, quite famous, for touching the untouchables, wasn't he? He was so famous for touching the untouchables, as a matter of fact, that some people, the religious culture, the religious leaders of the day, you know what they called him? A friend of sinners. And that wasn't a compliment when they called him a friend of sinners. It was meant to be actually quite a put down. And Jesus invites you and me to that very same kind of friendship with sinners. What if it would be said of us? He or she is a friend of sinners. The sin doesn't matter. Jesus says, love, my kind of love, gets up close and personal with people who are in desperate need of God's forgiveness and grace, no matter what it is that they're into. 
After all, how else are we going to have a chance to share God's love and truth with them? You want to shed your prejudices and you want to shed your stereotypes in a hurry? Become a genuine friend with a member of whatever group it is that you've tended to look down on and judge and so. Just try it. Because it's really, really, really hard to hate your friends. Very hard. And Jesus continues his conversation with the Samaritan woman and he's so concerned about this woman's spiritual condition that he moves the conversation way beyond small talk about water wells, Jewish and Samaritan belief nuances and so. And he moves it to the place of talking about the gift that God was offering her right then, spiritual water. Jesus referred to it symbolically. He expresses it quite masterfully with grace and with truth alike. She said to Jesus, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, if only you knew the gift God has for you and who you're speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket. She's still stuck on the well thing. She said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoy? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again, pointing at the well. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water now. Then I'll never be thirsty again. I won't have to come here to get water. And Jesus knew where this conversation was headed. And Jesus knew that she knew her moral missteps. Jesus wasn't about trying to reform her from the outside in. Let's start with changing your behavior and hope that that somehow penetrates itself to your heart. Instead, he was intent on sharing with her the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ, which is powerfully transformative from the inside out. That's the way the gospel works. It doesn't start with behaviors. It starts at a heart level. And in that abrupt moment, Jesus asks her to go get her husband. And he turns a corner, and here's what he's doing. He's actually establishing God's code of conduct for sexual purity, isn't he? He's laying it out. He's making it very clear. And he lets her know in no uncertain terms that he knows the unvarnished truth about her life. And he says, you know, the course you're on is not God's best for you. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her, the Bible said. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus says, you're right. You don't have a husband for you have five husbands. You aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. Now, notice Jesus doesn't hammer this woman with a list of Bible bullet passages that condemn her behavior. Rather, Jesus comes at the deal from the perspective of what I'm for, what I'm for, not what I'm against. Jesus is saying, you know, the five husband thing and the shacking up thing that you got going on right now, that is so far from the best that God has for you. I have so much better in store for your life. Want to know about it? And I want to be really clear that sexual purity absolutely matters to God. It absolutely matters to God. And it's just one single piece of an overall healthy, growing, real, vibrant relationship with God. Jesus never makes sexual purity the only leg of the stool when he sketches out what it is to know and follow him. It's just one piece of a much bigger picture. 
And Jesus does a very cool thing. He chooses this Samaritan woman as the only, the only person to whom he overtly reveals his identity as the Messiah. That's amazing. And he sort of springboards off of there and he casts vision for her life, what it would be like for her to be a true worshiper of God. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship or we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worship? That was its own sticky question in Jesus' day. And Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way, looking for those just like you, he's pointing to the Samaritan woman. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus told her, I am the Messiah, implying it's being explained to you right now. That's what I've been doing for the past whatever many minutes they've been engaged in this conversation. It's been happening right here, right now. And then Jesus' disciples come back. Just then, the Bible says, his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Why are you talking to her? Their response is quite typical of Christians and the church when we're lacking evangelistic vision. And Journey, we always, we always have to be pushing back against those tendencies. Sometimes when we're busy expressing the love of Christ to people who are far from him, other Christians, other churches, other people, and so they'll misunderstand and they'll mistrust and they'll misconstrue. They'll even express downright disdain. And we must push back against those tendencies within ourselves. We must ask God to constantly be giving us his heart and his mind, especially when it comes to what we might consider in the church sort of fringe ministries. Ministries to people involved in homosexuality and the list is long. Because here's what I want to be true of Journey. I want us as Journey Church to be known for what we're for, not just what we're against. What we're for, not just what we're against. It is so incredibly disheartening to me that survey data tells us again and again and again that when young people are asked today what they think of the church, one of their top five responses every time is, oh, that's the people, that's the place that is so anti-gay. And we as a church can have very real, legitimate, biblical concerns about homosexual conduct and at the same time not have that be the defining characteristic of the movement of the church of Jesus Christ. Because I don't know about you, but I want to be part of the movement of Jesus Christ that reflects the fullness and the radiance and the attractiveness of the love of God. His grace, His forgiveness, His salvation, His healing, His hope, both in this life and in in the life that is to come. Because see, if we ever hope to be the church that Jesus intended for his bride to be, we must work tirelessly to shift our focus back to that positive position, less focused on trumpeting pronouncements of what sins you and you and you and you and you are committing. And it's not an either-or kind of thing. We see Jesus do this both-and thing. He's proclaiming God's incredibly good news, his grace, his love, and... At the same time, he has the courage to lovingly explain what the Bible reveals about God's view of sin. 
He's not bashful about it at all, and neither should we be. And Journey, I want us, for as long as we exist, to always, always, always be the community that people feel safe bringing their struggles to. Whether it's homosexuality, whether it's alcoholism, it doesn't matter what it is. Every struggle. Are we safe people? And this amazing thing happens, back to the Bible. The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran to the village telling everyone, come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Not only in that moment, that interaction with Jesus, did that Samaritan woman receive salvation, she also received Jesus' immediate commissioning into the ministry of evangelism to her friends and community and family. You know, it's actually through this one woman's efforts that the church was actually launched in Samaria. You talk about an unexpected twist to the story, and here's what's true. Jesus has the very same purpose in mind for every single person on the planet. He wants to take the people who are absolutely furthest from God and turn them into his impassioned servants, missionaries, followers. Every person, every single person. Take your stuff and set it aside if you would, and I just invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads. And while you're praying, while you're listening to the Lord and interacting with Him, it just seems real appropriate that the question that we ask God on a day like this is, God, what do you have for me in this? What do you have for me? And because you're also part of a larger community, what do you have for us as the Journey Church community? Are there thoughts and are there attitudes and are there judgments that aren't at all compatible with what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ? What it is, what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself. So God, in light of that, what changes would you invite me to walk out? changes would you invite the Journey Church community to be fleshing out? Are we doing everything we possibly can to love our neighbors as ourselves? No matter their sexual orientation, no matter their addiction, no matter their past life, their behavior, their abusive tendencies. Oh God, that we would be the church, the pure and spotless bride 
that you envision for us to be. The bride that despite our human failings, despite our sinful tendencies, the bride that reflects you perfectly, wholly, entirely. The bride that loves people with the fullness of the love of Christ and is absolutely, absolutely committed to the truth. expressing the truth and not watering down the truth. Oh, that we would be the church that you envision us to be, God. Make it so. Please, make it so. And maybe you're a person who's here today and you don't yet have your own personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe to this point you've been quite skeptical of God, you've doubted his love for you entirely, and so you've just kind of been doing life your own way, your own thing. And and honestly, that probably hasn't been going very well. Could I just invite you to think, could I just push in on you and say, what if this is your day? What if this is your day to believe to trust, to receive God's love firsthand. What if this is your day? What's keeping you from this being your day? You start that transaction, if that's you, by confessing to God, God, I'm a sinner. Every single thing in my life has been going away from you. And I'm asking God to please please forgive me for everything, all of it. And it's gnarly in there, God. Jesus, I want you more than I want anything. And I need you to change me. And if you're a person who's here today who's saying, I'm giving, I'm yielding, I'm trusting God today, I'm surrendering my whole life to him. I'm not trusting in myself. I'm not trusting in anything else except Jesus. If that's your prayer today, would you just real boldly lift your hands high and just say, yep, that's me today. Lock eyes with me and just say, yeah, that's me today. I'm saying yes to God today. Yeah, there in the back, yes. And there, I see it, yes. I stand with you. Jesus, for these who are saying yes to you today, we stand with them. We cheer them. We encourage them. And God, we ask that you would scoop them up in the way that only you can and that you would take them into what it means to be your child, your son, your daughter. That you would take them into what it means to be your church, that pure and spotless bride. It embodies you tangibly. That loves neighbors. That loves you 
with the fullness of the love that God gave us. And you're the best, God. We worship you. We trust you. We are all yours. Thank you.